Welcome to the Passion Harvest podcast audio series. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Louisa, your host, International Passion Ambassador. If you would like to watch this episode, please head over to our Passion Harvest channel on YouTube. We love taking you on a journey to discover your passions. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there, and thank you for listening to Passion Harvest, where we aim to inspire you to live a passionate life. My guest today, I'm so excited about. This is going to be fun with Stephen and Evan Strong. Stephen and Evan are trying to share our understanding of ancient Australia as having a rich past that started long ago. They have written a series of books on the subject and are passionate about sharing their message, in particular, alien and UFO involvement in our past, present and future. I hope I'm going to get this right. They have spent many years living with the tribes within Burrajalung Confederation of Northern New South Wales and the Gamilaroi people of Northern New South Wales and are guided by Kano, the Ramanjeri tribe. Get ready for a really passionate discussion and I'm sure you're going to learn a lot. I am as well. Welcome, Stephen and Evan, to Passion Harvest. I'm so excited. <laughs> well, thank you for asking to join you. And Evan is around in the corner. Hi, wherever you are. He'll come back. <laughs> He'll pop oh, I'm in. lurking in the shadows. <laughs> so I guess my first question would be, since this is a show about passion, what got you interested in all these incredible sites? How did it start and evolve and manifest to these amazing websites? It began um, by proxy because I was not, I didn't. I don't do archaeology, and we don't do history. I was actually um, a teacher, and I was teaching Aboriginal studies involved in writing up the curriculum for New South Wales in Australia. And I was teaching the course, and got on well with the children, and therefore, because I got on well with the original children, therefore the adults, and then they started to share with me their real history. And I realised that what we'd written up in the course, and I'm, in, I'm involved and I'm responsible for this too, was actually rubbish, all of it. It was so wrong. We had not got any of the original history right. So when they came back to do a rewrite, they asked me to come down. And I went down and basically said, the rewrite has to involve all of the information you've got. If you go before Cook, nearly all of it's wrong. That went over like a ton of bricks with any department, particularly the Department of Education, because they know everything. And uh, about five or six days later, I resigned from teaching and started making a huge economic mistake in writing <laughs> books and talking about original culture as it was given to me by the elders. And that's basically what we've done ever since. We actually wait for elders to contact us to invite us on the country. We don't go ferreting around the countryside looking for things. Mm. We wait to be told, and when we go there, we work under the oldest direction, we're given the answer, which makes it a lot easier, and then we just work out the questions. So it's as simple as that. If the Department of Education had agreed to a rewrite, I'd still be teaching to this day. But because they didn't, I was backed into a corner. I knew what the truth was, and I knew they were lying. Not deliberately. Mm. Just because institutions can't see the truth, it's just part of the way they work. So we walked out of teaching, well, I did anyway, and went into the bush uh, for a much lower income, but with many more truths. 
Wow. So you're basically rewriting or writing for the Aboriginal people or the Indigenous people, their history, that, that yeah. as they know it, the stories that have been told are taken down for generations. Yeah. And they, they take you into the bush to show you specific sites, sacred sites and hieroglyphs that are significant to them. Yeah, absolutely. Every time. And when we go on country, we always do ceremony. I don't have any choice. My elder made that very clear, didn't he, Evan? Yeah, yeah. Extremely clear. Threat of death if I actually ever didn't do ceremony again. So we go on the country with ceremony first. Normally I take my rocks with me and we smoke ourselves and we let the spirits know we're coming. We approach it the old way, the proper way to go on the country. Most archaeologists go on the country after they've come out of a university and they've got a grant. They already think they know the answer and they go on there with their clipboards, but <clears throat> they haven't learned how to listen. You've got to go into country and listen to the elders and keep your mouth shut. And the more you keep your mouth shut, the more they'll tell you. And once mm. you've got that information, then you can start saying a few things, but you already know the answer. So, yeah, we always go on to country and I've got places I'm supposed to go to at the moment, one in Toowoomba and another one in Queensland. And again, I'm waiting for final permission before I do that. I wouldn't go any other way. Beautiful. And when you say country, you just mean out, so in the countryside, in the bush. Yeah, well, normally the bush we go into, Evan, it's pretty remote, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah normally steep. No paths. No, no paths. paths. <laughs> trees and you cut yourself to pieces. Sometimes it's at night. Oh, yeah, we've done that at night too, haven't we? Yeah, we go when they tell us to go and we go where they tell us to go. But the places we go and see now, there's no streets and there's no cafeterias. And um, So how do you navigate, though? How do you navigate to the places or someone guides you? <laughs> I couldn't navigate that. There's a standard joke with me when we go in the country. <laughs> there, uh, yeah, yeah. Every now and again, people decide, oh, I'll just follow where Steve's walking. No, 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 that's the surest way to get lost. I've been to carry in the carry on list 40 times and I still remember about the 38th time I took the wrong turn. So I have no, I have no idea where I am in the bush. The people around me do. I always go with people who know what they're doing and I always go with original people. When I go in the bush, I follow others. I certainly don't lead because if I led, well, we wouldn't be here now. I, I have exactly that. the same problem, but I guess I don't go out country so much. I use Google Maps, but... If I didn't, you can drop me anywhere and I seem to get lost. <laughs> oh, well, you do well with me. We, we go well together. We just walk in circles. Wow, fabulous. And I can't stop looking at those skulls you have behind you. What no. Are they? <laughs> are we not ready for that one yet? I oh, know. It's any order you want to do it. No, I'm happy to go wherever you want. Um, I know there's a couple of particular sites that, I'd love to talk about, depending on the time frame. Um, should we start with the ring from Atlantis, which I know is a very popular one and you've got a lot to say about it and I can't wait to hear more. Okay. Well, I'll try and keep it brief because it is an interesting story, but we better make sure we cover it reasonably well. A lady rang me. Her name is Ros and she's been an amazing backer. She's bought oh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of rocks that were being sold on auction for us and helped us a long time in many ways. And she rang and she said, I've seen this ring on eBay I want to bid for. And she asked me, what did I think? Well, I was wholly underwhelmed by the whole idea of doing rings. Yes, it was found in Australia. And yes, it was found one and a half metres beneath the surface. I've spoken to Sean Oakes about that, the guy that found it, and that's legit. 
but a ring we do skulls we do rocks we do engravings we do all that sort of stuff but we don't do personal jewelry in australia because there's been no need to so when she said she was going to buy this she asked me what did i think <laughs> i basically said if you want <laughs> i couldn't see the point <laughs> well she bought it anyway she yeah. felt she was drawn and was compelled to buy it and she did and then what happened was she had it at her place and she told me something at the time and I remember hearing and it just went over my head. She said, the ring keeps disappearing and coming back days later. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, fine, Rose. Yeah, okay, that, I can get that. And she said, it says it wants to come down to us. And really that went over my head because the concept of a ring and she told me they actually ended up putting it on a table somewhere. Both her and her husband would put it there. They'd go away. It was gone and come back three days, two days mm -hmm. later. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, fine. I don't doubt this woman. She's never lied to me, but I just never understood it. So the ring turns up. She sends it to me, sends it in this black pouch, and it sits on a bench for two and a half months. And I keep walking past thinking, okay, two paragraphs. Shouldn't be in Australia. Original people have stick stone and bone technology. It's an amazing ring. It's got a compound of five elements. It's got shapes and marks on it no one's ever seen. That's two paragraphs, nothing else. I just couldn't see what I was going to write about. Can I ask what the ring was made of? Well, I'm going to get to that now. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. No, no, no. I'm jumping it's ahead. A... I'm so excited. Oh, no, I can't... It's the proper question to ask. <laughs> uh, so then what happened was I decided, okay, one day I decided, yeah, I'm going to look at it. And I knew this, that Sean Oaks, this is what happened. He had gone to a place called Hill End, which is on 33 degrees south of the equator. It's where the biggest nugget in a gold nugget in Australia was found. And he bought this new metal detecting machine. And he and his mate were going to go gold, pressing, gold prospecting on the weekend, which makes sense. Hill End would be a good place to go. And that night, him and his mate decided to celebrate. And they got drunk. They celebrated their prospective finds. And he woke up in the morning. And I know this sounds a bit vague, but we're going to get to it now. And he decided... He told me it was a whim, but I don't believe it was a whim. I reckon the ring actually called him. He decided to go up a hill that he knew there was no gold. They knew that. Everyone knew that. It was really degraded hill. It's surrounded by gold fields, but there was no gold on this hill. No tracks up there. No reason to go up there. But he just went up there to make the thing go and probably to clear his head because he had a hangover and he wasn't feeling great. He knew he had two days' work. So he's walking up there and he gets a reaction. And he digs down and digs down and digs down a metre. And there's still, and he puts the thing over and it goes off again. He thinks, why am I doing this? There's nothing there. And finally, a metre and a half down, which is 10, 20,000 years at least, he finds this ring and it looks like gold. So he goes and gets it assayed. And lo and behold, I've got the assay test and it goes to four decimal points. So we know exactly what's in there. And at the top of it, it says, no gold present, which is a great disappointment to this guy because he could see the ring was ancient mm -hmm. and it had symbols on it. And he's thinking, if this is gold and it's that rare, he's going to get hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, it turns out it's copper, zinc, lead, nickel, and iron. Okay, and that's what it is. And that's in that rough order, copper first and zinc second, then the other three trace elements, which are much, much lower. And he looks at that and thinks, well, that's not what I wanted. So he has it for a while and he had a major event with it where 
it gave him a clue there was something unusual about the ring where he went away one day and he got a phone call from the police to say his house had been burgled and his car had been written off, which is not a great thing to get when you're on holidays. Mm -hmm. So he races back to his place, goes into his house, and there on the ground is the leather pouch. And guess what's missing? The ring. And he thinks, oh, well, they've come to steal the ring because he's told a few people about it. And you'll find out now, we've had offers for it that we know go into millions of dollars. Anyway, he doesn't know any of that. And he just thinks, oh, the ring's gone. So he goes down to see his car and down the end of the road, it's been written off. And that's quite bizarre because the police didn't know about the burglary. No one in the street knew about it. So why would you steal a car and then go off at 100 k's an hour and write the car off going around the corner? Wouldn't you just drive off slowly? But when he gets to the car, there's a tape around it, crime scene, the whole business. You go around to the passenger side seat door, and there on the ground, the door's still open, the ring is sitting there. And the question he's asking himself is, did the car get crashed by these people speeding off? And then did the ring just coincidentally drop out as he ran, ran away? Or did the ring get involved? And his answer was the ring got involved. And I took that on board. So then what I did was, Evan normally does all the computer work. I think today, as you know, he turned it on. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I don't do any of it. But he wasn't there that day. And I decided, okay, I'm going to write about the ring. I've got five elements here. I'll just punch them into the computer screen and hit search and see what comes up. Nothing. Not a thing. Not a scientific paper in the world has these elements in this order. Mm -hmm. Nothing anywhere. And there was only one hit. And it was under Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia's written about us, and I can tell you now, it's not very nice what they've got to say to us, is it, Evan? Oh, yeah. And I figured, Wikipedia, right, the source of all left-wing information, I won't bother looking. So I kept looking for a while, and finally I went to it. And lo and behold, when I got there, I see Plato, Pliny the Elder, Aphrodite, the poem about Aphrodite by Homer. And I think, hang on for a sec, I'm going to look at this in more detail. And I find that it's got a name. And it's called Orichalcum. And the five elements are exactly the same elements we have off that readout. And I thought, hang on, this is getting a bit more interesting. And I read about Orichalcum, and it's only found in Atlantis. Now, up until this day, we have never read about Atlantis, nor have we taken any interest in it. So we're not flogging the Atlantis story because we weren't interested in it. It meant nothing to me. I thought, Atlantis, well, I've heard of it, but there's no actual proof of it. And hang on for a sec. If this ring is from Atlantis, then there is proof. This is the first concrete proof it exists. That's so a scientist in you coming out. More. Yeah. So we find out that um, Ari Chalcom was Aphrodite's special ring and it was devoted to her, or that, that particular substance was devoted to her. And in, in Atlantis, in the Temple of Poseidon and Cleito, the inner sanctum, the walls, the floor, and even the pillar with all the information placed on it was only an orichalcum and it had a gold dome on top. I thought myself, well, hang on, now we're getting somewhere. This is a sacred metal. But then there was still one small, say, hitch in this story because there has been one discovery of orichalcum made and it was made in a 6th century BC Roman galleon. Now, I can tell you, Pliny the Elder said in the first century BC 
that the mines were exhausted. Plato said in the fourth century BC, it no longer existed. But in the sixth century BC, we have a Roman galleon that has, I think, 38 ingots, is it Evan? Like yeah, and they used it for their coins, not for a ring, but for the coins. So I thought, okay, we've got one or two possibilities now. It could be Rome or it could be Atlantis. So then what we did was we looked at the breakdown of the orichalcum found in the Roman ingots. I'm thinking now perhaps the Romans are mining the last mine that wasn't destroyed in Atlantis and they're using that because obviously soon after it's gone and it's exhausted and plenty said that. But this is what we found. All of the orichalcum found in the uh, Sicilian uh, wreck is 75% or higher copper. Ours mm -hmm. is 73.96% copper, so it's below. All of the orichalcum in the ingots in Sicily are 20% zinc. Ours is 25.6% zinc. And then here comes the clangor. The other three trace elements in the ingots are five to ten percent. Ours were 0.5 of a percent. It's a bit like homeopathy where you put in drops of something to give it a, a special flavor or, or um, efficiency. Mm. And I thought to myself, well, what we've got here is yes, they've got the same order and so have we, but every part of what we have is completely different from what the Romans were mining. So this ring, the one I actually have, oh God, pardon me, uh, right now, and I normally just keep it on the bracelet and I'm holding it up now. Is that the ring? That particular ring, right, is not Roman because their mine, every part of what they had is different to ours. Our trace elements are 10 times less. We have less copper than any of theirs and more zinc than any of ours. So, yes, they are both orichalcum because of the components. And there is no mine anywhere on the planet that has this ore anywhere. It has not been made since 6th century BC, but this is not Roman. Now, that being the case, we then investigated the two markings on this ring, and we've got it up in articles and people can see it, and we've drawn it up. And we found, well, actually I didn't, the lady who bought this ring found that there's two markings, one has four and one has five. And the one that has four is the Berber motif for Atlas, who was the son of Poseidon, mm -hmm. and which Atlantis is named after. Wow. And if you've ever seen the statue of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders, the motif that runs around the bottom was taken from the Berbers and is exactly the same as this one. So we're thinking, hang on, we've got all that is not Roman, that is the son of Poseidon. And then we had the other symbol. The other symbol were five circles, and each one of them is slightly different, with straight and horizontal lines above and below. Now, if I go to Plato, he tells me about Atlantis, and he talks about the inner ring of Atlantis being five rings of water and land. And this ring has five rings, and each one of them is different. They're not the same. And, of course, the rings of water and land of Atlantis were not the same too. And it was transversed by horizontal and vertical roads. Well, lo and behold, above and below each of those rings is a horizontal line and a vertical line. So what we think we have here are the five rings of Atlantis and the sun 
of Poseidon, who the name Atlantis came from, who was Atlas on this ring. So between those two pieces of information, it became fairly obvious to me, this is definitely one of the rings from Atlantis. Now here's the rub. Now that I'd had my first success on a computer ever, <laughs> and that would be true, would it not? Evan? Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> normally it's chaos. I go into a computer and I can make a breakdown really easy. I just press buttons and all goes wrong. <laughs> I thought I'm going to go back in for a second one and I'm now going to type in Atlantean rings to see what I get. And I did. And this one really blew me away. And I don't think most people know this either about Tutankhamun's tomb. And remember, Tutankhamun's tomb, Khufu's son, these are supposed to be sons of Khufu who came to Australia. So there's a strong link here all of a sudden. I find out there is a, another ring of Atlantis that's written about. And it was found by a French archaeologist, Marquis de Agrain, in 1860. And I don't know why he called it an Atlantean ring, but he did. I've no idea why. And he found it and brought it back to France. And his granddaughter married a gentleman called Andrew Bilazal. And he wrote a book in the 1810s, 1910s or 20s, I don't know when. And he said that the ring that he had could destroy all negative energy be it invisible or visible. It was purely positive energy and could overcome anything. That's a huge claim to Maine. And of course, you can imagine that mainstream archaeologist Don Mass dis dismissed this book as a load of rubbish, mm. except one archaeologist whose name was Howard Carter. Now, Howard Carter was the person who led the expedition into Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm. Now, Howard Carter went across to France and he saw this ring and he was very taken by it. And he was told by Bilazel that it's the markings on the ring that give it this magical power. So they made him an exact copy of this ring. He was given, and then when he wore that ring, he put it on his little finger. And if you find pictures of Howard Carter, and we found many of them, you will not find a picture after he went into that tomb where he doesn't have that ring on his little finger. So they made that copy. And what he then did was he had a dream that night when he put it on his finger that he would go to Egypt and make a major discovery. This is all true. So he goes off to Egypt with the copy, not the original, walks in to Tutankhamun's tomb, which was cursed. And as you know, there were 18 people that walked in and after about six months, only one was alive. And guess who it was? It was yeah. Carter. And he lived for another 30 years. Why did he live for another 30 years? Why is it he didn't die and they did? because he wore the ring that repels all negative forces, be they invisible or visible. And that's what Bidlazel wrote. And Carter believed in it. And we happen to know someone who was in the Carter family. Don't we, Evan? Yes, we do. And I think what he did was he gave, when he passed on, he gave it to an auntie, didn't he? Yeah. And she wore it, like I do, as, as a, a necklace. And it's still in that family. And they're only protecting the copy. My understanding is the original ring is incredibly powerful and incredibly magic. So we know of two rings, and this is where it gets very Tolkien-esque. We firmly believe, we've been given information to believe a third ring was made, and it's purely evil. Remember Tolkien's story 
the Lord of the Rings is based on a Scandinavian myth of three rings that ruled the world. We believe those rings were made in Lemuria and Atlantis and they did rule the world. Tolkien, most myths on this planet are based in truth. And we believe that Tolkien was writing about these rings. So we knew that that particular ring, and we also then, and of course that backed me into a situation where if that ring was magic, this ring, which has been tampered with, because on the fifth ring, there's been another cup made, and on the other side of the ring, it's missing. So this ring was actually, and if you hold it up, you will see that it's not quite circular. It's been bent. And there is an extra cup there, which goes through the other side. It was cut, tampered with, and destroyed to an extent, because we do know in this ring, it was purely good also, and evil was placed inside it. And you need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, the statue of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders was not veneration. He had led an insurrection in the temple and was punished for doing so. And he was holding the world because he created problems for the planet. We believe Atlantis fell because this ring was tampered with and it contains both good and evil within it. And of course, that's where it gets difficult for me because now we're talking about magic. And we have seen, and I can't go into details today, but we have seen when the ring was stolen off us, we've seen what the evil side is like, haven't we, Evan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we so, were nearly killed one night. Um, because you didn't have the ring. We didn't have the ring and the person, see this ring, what it does is the person who wears it or holds it, if you're evil, it feeds it. If you're primarily good, because no one's perfect on this planet, none of us are, it will feed that. And the person who stole the ring from us, we were warned by my elders and by psychics we were going to be attacked that night. And I think Evan went to bed um, without any and woke up with nine ticks. And he's allergic to ticks. They can kill him. Me too. And this was in the middle of winter when there's no ticks around. I was nearly killed also that night. It was a long and involved story. The moral of this story is what I was found was when I had the ring to begin with and I found out the story about what happened with Bill Azal and Howard Carter, it became obvious to me that all three of these rings were magic and now I had to, I had to prosecute that case. But to do that, I actually challenged the ring the first night I had it when I realised what it was and I said to the ring, primarily, I'm not going to ask again, but if I'm going to say that this ring is magic, you as a ring, if you're magic, you have to do something to me that night to prove to me that it is magic. And what happened that night, I put it on this string, the red string, because that's the color it's supposed to be. I put it on my chest and laid down and within five seconds of laying down, I had this pulsation of energy like a wave that went through the whole of my body. And every five seconds, it kept doing it. And it went on for about 30 minutes. And it would count to five and it would do it again and again and again. And after half an hour, I took the ring off. And I said to the ring, I don't need any more evidence now. I now know your magic. My only question was, could it affect others? And could it affect people over a distance? And I can tell you that's the case also. So what we now have is a ring buried in Australia taken from Atlantis. We think originally it was made in Lemuria and the markings were put on in Atlantis. The ring was destroyed, not destroyed so much as left open so that if someone with poor intentions 
wears this ring, they'll get what they want. They'll get exactly what they want. It does manifest and it does create energy of itself. Um, and it's sort of difficult because I am basically a scientist and I write most of our articles in a scientific manner. And I find it very difficult to go down this path, but I don't really have an option. We feel it has a reason why it was found now and why that gentleman um, decided to go up that particular hill and turn his machine on. Not because it was just a wild fancy and a whim that he decided to do because the ring put that thought into his head. And we believe this ring has been called back into circulation because it has a journey that was thwarted way back, but still wants to complete that journey. So we think that's why the ring is turned up now. And that's a very brief account of where the ring is up to at this particular stage. Wow. 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 <laughs> I'm blown away. That, that, whether you call it a story, I absolutely believe it, but it's quite incredible. Where, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, so we know where the, you've got one ring, there's another one apparently in France. Where's the third one? Oh, I can tell you that. That's the easy part of this equation. The ring in France is not turned on. You see, you have to give them ceremony. Sacred objects must be given ceremony to turn them on. They just can't be stood there and say, do tricks. Okay, it did a party trick for me. It's done a few party tricks and we've seen that. Okay, we haven't got the time to go over now, but we've seen that. But those two rings together, the other ring is purely good. This ring under the right conditions could be more powerful because it understands both sides of the equation. I've had mm -hmm. psychics tell me exactly the same thing. Don't take the evil out of this ring, but make sure no one evil wears it. The third ring is being worn. Now, I can't describe what the person looks like, but I can give you some clues and I can give you a couple of words that will give you a fairly good idea. Think of someone that's incredibly rich, that has no respect for the planet, is more than likely 99.99% reptilian, as part of the Illuminati, and is the one that sits on the desk that runs the show. They'll be wearing this ring. And we believe this ring has been worn consistently, consistently since Atlantis fell around 12,000 years. And that is why this planet, this time around, from the very beginning, it's been under warfare. I, was a, I, I taught history, geography in high school. And I can tell you now, when you teach history in high school, you teach them about wars and occasionally about people who think of brilliant things who get persecuted and release their information after they're dead. But most of our planet, for the last 10,000 years, has been in constant warfare. Why? Because the evil ring has been sung up and the beings that have that ring know how to use its power and harness its power. And yes, doesn't that sound like the ring of Mordor that, that Tolkien spoke about? Absolutely. I will say again that Tolkien sourced it on a Scandinavian myth that was based on the truth of three rings that did rule this planet. But remember, to begin with, the ring in France and this one, until it was broken, there would have been two rings that were positive and one that is negative. Now, some people have asked me, well, why would anyone make an evil ring? And the answer is obvious. I'm an original person. And we respect and revere evil because without it, this planet would be useless. If it was purely good, if everything was good, then our soul would never be challenged. 
with the inequity, the unfairness and the things that go wrong and we know they're wrong and the people who do these horrible things, if they weren't there, what would you learn when you incarnated here? When you went back to heaven or whatever you want to call it, they'd say, well, what was it like? Beautiful scenery, some pretty birds and some great looking fish. What did you learn? <laughs> oh, I learned it was really nice there, but what challenges did you get? Oh, no challenges. I just went on a lovely scenic tour for 80 years and then died. Oh, where's the point going? If there is no evil on this planet, there's no chess game. And without that chess game, God and the devil can't play a game. There has to be evil here. So that third ring had to be made. We always have to have that chance to drop away, to make mistakes, to fall away from what we're supposed to do. If there was no challenge, don't come to this place. So that was made. But this ring was supposed to be two and one. This ring, I think it was meant to happen. So it becomes one and a half and one and a half because this ring can go either way. And to an extent, and I haven't said this before, and this probably isn't going to help us any. We believe we found the ceremony to turn this ring on. And we've given it three, we've given it two or three times, and we believe each time it's got stronger. That probably isn't going to do me any uh, long-term favours because I do know that the wearer of the other ring would become more powerful if he had this ring also. That would make his power far greater. And honestly, there's so much evil on this planet now. Oh, that, that's the other reason why this rings back. There's too much. It has to stop for a while. Evil has to step away. This planet has to be cleansed. And if we don't cleanse it soon, very soon, the planet will cleanse itself. Wow. Okay. I'm just trying to digest all that incredible information. Do you mind, and, and everyone who's listening, you're going to have to watch this on YouTube because do you mind just holding up the ring so we can um, have a look at it? I'll try and get it as close as I can. You'll see there's, um, I'll sort of spin it around as we go. You'll see there's a, a four, four mil by four mil piece and there's a caption in there and then we've got a two by two mil piece on the other side there, two by four rather. It runs all the way around there. You probably won't see the engravings that well. You'll have to look on our website to see mm -hmm. that. It's pretty difficult. But when you can see when the, the gold prospector got this, it looks it has the colour of gold. In fact, I think the Romans call it mountain gold. It looks like it is gold, and he really thought he'd hit it. Actually, it turned out it's far more valuable because How it incredible. is the only ring like this in Australia, on the planet. There's nothing like it anywhere. So why, oh gosh, we've got to move on. I've got so many questions for you, but why do you wear it around your neck and not on your finger? Well, because I wore it on my finger um, once, I think, when we had a meeting the day before it was taken off. And what happened to my finger, Evan? What did it do? It turned a like, greenish colour. Turned greenish blue straight away. Um, because to put it on your finger, apparently I'm the only male who can put it on my finger. There's three women who can. And we believe when the change takes place, the whole of this planet will become matrilineal and the women will then wear this ring to make decisions. I don't put it on my finger unless I need wisdom or I'm looking at something where I need guidance or when we do ceremony with it. The rest of the time it sits like this on this and then it sits on my chest. So I'm in contact with it, but to put it on your finger should not be done lightly mm. for any other male. And I've let other people put it in their palm like this for half a minute. There's one gentleman 
who put the ring in his palm like that. He came and saw us, didn't he, Evan? Yeah. Two everyone months probably later, wants to touch it, right? The first thing oh, when people God, meet you, come look at the ring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, two months later, he's still got the circle on his palm. It hasn't gone away. Mm. What happens to me? Yes, people do come up and ask, can they put it in their hand and can they touch it? And the answer is no, no, no. But occasionally, if I meet someone whose soul is really developed, and I've met a few, I let them hold it between their hands for one minute. And I make the point straight away, do not put it on your finger or you will be on the ground and there's nothing I can do to help you because it will not react to that. For reasons I don't fully understand, I'm the only male that can actually put it on and I always put it on this finger here. It'll be placed on that one, which I've done just now because I am talking about it. And you'll notice straight after I took it off again. So no, I don't put it on there because I don't think until the time is right, I don't think it's a great idea that I do put it on. And when that happens, I'll need it for certain reasons. But in the meantime, it stays with me. And as I said, I know three women who can actually put it on their finger. I saw another woman put it on her finger against my wishes. That didn't end up well, did it, Evan? No, it didn't. <laughs> Where are you, <laughs> Evan? Up poorly. <laughs> are you hiding? <laughs> well, I'm just off camera because otherwise um, we end up having to sit in each other's laps. Oh, so okay, okay. That's not a good thing. I mean, he's my son. <laughs> we don't sit in each other's laps. So, no, um, we we're just very careful with it. When I'm doing ceremony, yes, we have a few things to do and it goes on your finger for nine minutes at the end of it. Um, and that's about as long as I've ever worn this ring. It is, it is old. It is incredibly magic. And it has certainly, I believe, 110% has a role in the change that's coming. And therefore, it's got to be looked after. And it's not, I shouldn't be worn as a party trick. So, no, I don't wear, put it on my finger much. But I did to begin with, because whenever I get a new rock, a sacred rock, I carry it for days before I even start looking at it to get to feel what the rock is about and, and its magic and power within. And with the ring, I put it on my finger in a day and a half. And after leap, of course, reading Lord of the Rings and all the rest, I thought, well, then I'm done for. And I can <laughs> share one thing with you. Tolkien was right. We saw it with a person who put the ring on that shouldn't have had it and stole it off us. It is incredibly possessive and does take over the person who's holding the ring. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And I'm not going to go into the reasons why I know it's the case. Sure. It certainly has taken over me, but I'm okay with that because I know which half of the ring is taking over. me. I know what the evil part is like. It's made its voice clear to me many times. It constantly makes suggestions to me and I ignore them all. Um, so it's not quiet, but I believe I can get the balance right. And we are giving it ceremony and that ceremony does not honour the dark side of the ring on us, the light side of the ring. And we're making the light side of that ring stronger and stronger each time. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's um, a pretty incredible story. I guess moving on, it might relate to the, um, the engravings in the caves at Gosford, the 300 yeah. engraving, engravings. Yeah. It does. There's a site at Gosford. It's about five k's out of Gosford. There's three walls there and they have about 300 engravings and quite a few of them on the first wall. In fact, I've got, I have a manual of Proto-Egyptians. It's the earliest form of Egyptian hieroglyphs called Proto-Egyptian. And um, 
we know the story there about two boats of Egyptians who came and their boats were shipwrecked and they'd been beaten up by Aboriginal people further down the line. And they came here and left their story on one of those particular uh, walls. But on the other two walls, on that first wall, it's about 89% Proto-Egyptian. But on the other two walls, which are far more detailed, the Proto-Egyptian is only 44%, so it's not Egyptian. We believe it's part of the first language, which is original, Australian original. And we believe that the original people had a language way before, a written language way before anyone else, and the Egyptians learnt their hieroglyphs in Australia. And they took that back, that Proto-Egyptian, which they learnt there, and then took it back to Egypt and started their form of hieroglyphs. I know that's rather radical, but that is our belief. And Can I ask when you say original people, what are you referring to? What does original uh, mean? People might know that word as Aboriginal. Oh, okay. But uh, we don't, a lot of original people don't call ourselves Aboriginal because ab is a prefix which is negative, as in abhorrent, abnormal. Okay. And we believe the original people are the first people and okay. many original people, it's not my call, many original people call ourselves original, being the first people. We are not ab anything. We are original people. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we believe that the original people had this knowledge and the Egyptians came and learnt it and then took it back. Sure, they knew about from the Atlanteans, they knew about pyramids and all that other stuff. But when it came to magic, they came here to learn off us. So we believe that particular, those walls there, one is a story about two sons, Nefertaru and Nefertijeb sons of Khufu who came here and one of them died here after going two seasons westward. And of course, Karyong is on 33 degrees and the ring was buried at a site in New South Wales that's also on 33 degrees. And wow. I was sharing with you before we started, there's one glyph there, which is a glyph of a woman. Now, we've had quite a few psychics. I've asked psychics because I've done all the science and I had to go and ask psychics because I want to do magic. And science doesn't acknowledge magic. So I have to go to people who acknowledge magic and understand it. And all of the psychics have been telling us the same story about the ring being brought to Australia. And quite a few of them were very specific about where. They said that they landed at Carrion, which is why the Egyptians went to Carrion also. And it's worth bearing in mind that Nepa. Taru, when he got to Carrion, went two seasons westward, according to the glyphs. Well, if you walked two seasons, which is six months westward, you would get to Hill End, where the ring was buried. Well, the interesting part is that there are, there's a set of Egyptian glyphs, and I'm sure that's right. Then there's a large section of original glyphs about well, about the Pleiadians coming. It's as simple as that in the beginning of life and the mixture between Pleiadians and us. And then there's one glyph on the floor, which is the largest genuine glyph there. And it is of a woman. And as you pointed out before I told you, who is pregnant <laughs> and she holds a staff. Now I know the glyph for that. And that glyph is called a golden staff. She has two hands on it and above and below is half a ring and it's cut. Remember, I told you before this ring has been cut. Yes. So I found it interesting that half the ring was above and then there's a cut then half was below and it's a mm. cut. And she's standing on the ground. Now, 
the ring was buried in the ground and it was buried in a place where it's a gold field. Now remember, in the inner sanctum of the temple, it is gold and orichalcum. So this time the orichalcum is the minor component and buried near gold. And each of these psychics told me that the woman that was holding this on the rod was standing at Carrion and looking west. So I start to look at that glyph, which was always the most mysterious one of all of them. I could never work out what it's about. And I now see it is a woman. She's pregnant, fully pregnant, like eight months and three weeks and four days. <laughs> and she's holding a staff. And many of those psychics told me that she couldn't put the ring on her finger. So she carried it in a golden staff to Australia. So I now have what I think is absolute proof that what the psychics was telling me has been validated at that very special place where the glyphs can be found today. And of course, the third part of that narrative is all about the one dreaming story that goes to every tribe in Australia. Because all of our dreaming stories are land specific except one. And that's called the Seven Sisters from the Pleiades. And we believe that that narrative on the other two walls, and of course the most, the most common glyph there, is what the public calls, we never called it this, the public calls it the UFO glyphs. There's eight of them. And there's eight of them. Three are plummeting and four are landing because we believe the, the ship was shot down. And our, our elder from that particular place, the Darkingong elder, last full descent Darkingong elder, Arnie Bev, told us that that ship crashed in the waters of Bambara, which is two Ks from where the actual glyph is. And that particular glyph, it says it's to Khufu's sons, but there is actually a star map directly above the glyph that was dated by Sydney Uni. And it was dated to be 2500 BC, which works out to be 4,600 years ago which is the time when Khufu was alive. So you try and explain to me how you can get those sorts of coincidences at that particular place, and then tell me that as some said, it was done by uni students, and some other people say it was done by a deranged, intellectually um, handicapped chick, and other people say it was done by hippies and all this sort of stuff. Nobody knew about Proto-Egyptian until about 25 years ago, so I don't know how they would have known about it. It was only just discovered in Egypt. And apparently people in Australia knew about it before they knew about it in Egypt, which is rubbish. <laughs> that particular site is incredibly sacred. And it's got three stories in there we know of. The stories of the Pleiadians coming here, the stories of the Egyptians coming here, and the stories of the ring from Atlantis coming here. And they all went to a place which is 33 degrees south of the equator. So there's a coincidence there, which I don't think it's coincidental, but entirely intentional. I've got goosebumps so many times during your conversation. <laughs> so it definitely sounds right to me. Um, amazing, amazing. What came to me is that the woman who was holding the stuff with the ring, she couldn't wear it because her fingers were swollen from the pregnancy. Well, that could be right. We just knew she couldn't wear it because we, we it could be that as well as because at eight months, because if you've seen the stomach, she's just about to give birth. That's a definite. It could be that, or it could also be, from my understanding, um, 
I don't think she was able to wear it. My understanding is because there's inscriptions in there, and I know the inscriptions were on the centre pillar, it would have to be the wife of Poseidon, it's Cleito, which is her only mortal wife. And of course, her first son was Atlas. And by the way, Poseidon slept with virtually every woman on the planet. That's, <laughs> that's a given. You only have to read the story. But she was chosen specially. And I've got a suspicion from what I've been told, she never put it on there because it was her job. And I remember one psychic said, there's new land, new hope at this place. It was taken away from Atlantis when it was being destroyed. And her job wasn't to wear it, but to bury it and then wait for a time when it recalled and would bring itself back. And we obviously believe 110% that that gentleman, his name is Sean Oakes, and he's prepared to put both his names up, isn't he, Evan? He said he would. So people are going to challenge me and say, we made it. No, no, you go and see that bloke. He'll tell you about what happened. And he had a mate with him when they found it. So that part's covered. We didn't make it. They found it. And I believe that maybe she could have worn it, but maybe from the time it left Atlantis, it wasn't to go onto a finger until we came back, or maybe she couldn't have fitted it on anyway, because it is quite thin. Uh, I'm very thin myself, and I can get it on that finger, but I can't get it on these two fingers. But we do know it was much thicker at one stage. I don't know how thick it was, but obviously part of it's cut away. Okay. Do you have time for a little bit more or to move on to something, one of our other subjects? Well, I thought that maybe there might be a chance to talk about this three, um, three things out the back there. Love to, if you feel, if you, if you, I'd love you to continue. It's just absolutely fascinating. Sure. Well, actually it's interesting because my ring spends a lot of time because we actually have the actual bones of, uh, that middle one there. We have it in um, another part of the house. And this particular ring spends a lot of time on that particular skull, which is the original skull and many of our rocks. The story with this one is um, we've been to another site where we saw a complete, complete face and skull and skeleton of these beings. And here, this is a second site that someone else found and they gave us eight pits of bone, which were stuck together. And I'm going to hold it up to you. And what you're going to notice about this being is very simply compare my forehead with the being that you're looking at. Yeah. You'll notice there's a slight difference. It doesn't it's, have one. It's very, very, you know, from the eyes to the head, it's very narrow. Uh, there's the highest point, which is about a half a centimetre. Now, what we found is I've seen the original face of this and I knew straight away this is wrong. This is not like us now. We've had people who've done this and put this together. And I want to show you now, I think that he's actually given it too much of a forehead, but I'm prepared to put up with that. First thing I want you to look at the eyes. Now I'm going to hold up next to you a homo sapien. And I want you to compare the two and you're going to notice some big differences. Much bigger eyes. Notice the shape of the nose. The bigger eyes nose. are 46% bigger here. Now watch this at the back. Look how look where the look how the skull goes and compare it to this one. It's You'll flat. notice the back, the thickest part is right at the back. It's a flask shape. Yeah. Now, you'll also notice if I hold it up this way, notice the top there. You have a depression between your eyes. This doesn't have one. Look where the yeah. nose starts on this, right up higher. There is nothing about this being that is like us today. Most importantly, is the skull of this 
This is around 1700 CC. This is Homo sapiens sapien, what we call wise, wise man. Mm. Look at the difference. This skull is much bigger. This is 1300 CC. This is 1700 CC. That's a big difference, a huge difference. Huge. At the other site we went to and I worked on, and the government tried to put me in jail in quite a few times. I have many letters about that. Um, the two front teeth were taken out. And that's the same burial uh, initiation ceremony that took place at that place today. Now, we know that that one was about 60,000 years old. This one could be much older. But there's a couple of things about these beings that don't make terrestrial sense. Number one, it is far smarter. Number two, its eyes are 46%. The eye sockets are 46% bigger than ours. Mm -hmm. If it was walking around the countryside, it would have to have permanent sunglasses on because they're too big. You just get blinded. Your eyes are too damn big. It would become overwhelmed. It would only come out at night. But the biggest problem is this. On the first burial site, there was a femur bone and a humerus bone laying on the ground. I never dug in. I just worked with what was exposed. And I picked up the humerus bone, which is from the shoulder to the elbow, right? And you and I and most people are around 28 to 30 centimetres there. Mm -hmm. Some of the basketballers in America, they might be 32, right? The gibbon, which has got the longest arms of any primate, has got 35. This bone I picked up, I couldn't find the elbow joint, so I know it was at least three or four longer. It measured 43. That means that it's going to be somewhere between 47 to maybe 50 centimetres long, and ours are 30. And I thought to myself, hang on, I've got a problem here. The problem was the thickest part of that bone was less than one inch, and that's the problem. Because nature makes an appendage, whatever it is, bigger if we use it. It doesn't make it bigger just for an appendage and something to look nice to hang down the side there but can't be used. What can you put onto a bone that is that thin and that long that makes it functional and powerful? The answer is nothing. It doesn't make sense. If this is a primate that's going out during the daytime, the eyes are too big and it's got arms that are useless because there's no ligaments and muscles that would be big enough to make it worthwhile anything. If I threw a ball at it and tried to catch it, it could break itself trying to catch it because it just doesn't work. But if this being was born in a place where there was less sunlight and half the gravity, then that arm would work. But oh, if nature has made this thing, now we found four of these skulls, not one, which could be a mutation, not two, which we've seen, but two others. And they are spread apart by 2,000 kilometres. So it's not a freak mutation, which is what people said we found the first one, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Oh, it's just some weird oh, thing that's grown wrong. And when we kept finding them place after place with a nose up here and no forehead, and once we saw the fourth one, and we're still trying to get the two of them, and that's some fun. But what we've worked out is, no, this is a, a genre of being. But here's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. When I give you take back and show you this one here called Homo sapiens sapien, one, two, three sutures on it. All hominids have three sutures because Lucy had three sutures. We all did because that's how our brain gets bigger. Because when you're a child, when you're an infant, 
your brain is infused. And because it's flexible, Lucy had 600 cc, we've got 13 because we can flex it up. That one there, the re rebuilders said the same thing. They couldn't find that suture. It wasn't there. So this particular being, the one we've got, doesn't have three sutures. If it doesn't have three sutures, you know what it can't be? It can't be a sapien, it can't be a hominin. Well, is there any hominin that has no sutures or two? And the answer is no, no, it can't be. That's not how it works. Well, it does here. And I've got to tell you, for a woman to give birth to this being with a skull <laughs> like that at the back, with no sutures, yeah. go for a cesarean, ladies. I would not do that. <laughs> That will hurt because when you think you've got it out, look at the back. This is what's coming. Head comes oh my first. God. <laughs> but as it starts to come out, I'm going to tell you now, you're going to say, put it back. Let's do a cesarean. I'm not giving birth to this. You're very considerate. Oh, I thought about that straight away. No lady wants to give birth to that. we got kangaroos to give birth after two days. That's how every woman would like to do it. But my point is that because it doesn't have three sutures and because of the, of the whole structure of this being, my argument is it cannot be terrestrial. It just doesn't fit into any of those boxes. There's nothing about that face that is similar to ours. And I've made the point at many presentations, think about what a cheetah looks like. Think about what an elephant looks like. And they all look the same. Look about, what about a golden Labrador? They all look the same. Think about humans. There are 7 billion on this planet and none look the same. They can be, they can be sort of one centimeter to nearly three centimeters high. They can weigh 40 kilos, they can weigh 400 kilos. We've all got different eyes. We all walk differently. Some of us have got brown skin, some of us have got black skin, we've got purple skin, we've got white skin. Our hair can be every type of color, yet we're told we came from the same mother and father. It's a lie. It doesn't make nature's sense. Every other being on this planet you know what they look like and they all look roughly the same. There can be small variations, but you know what a golden Labrador looks like because that's how they look. With humans, you can't give me one face because there are seven billion of them, they're not the same. Now, if you take this being, which has got nothing in common with the other one, put them together, then you make the massive variation you've got. But if you take two of the same like this and you put them together, they're all gonna be like this. They have to be because that's your base. And every other animal on this planet obeys that rule and we don't. And I feel what we found here is a Pleiadian. And then my elders tell me, the Pleiadians, all of my elders tell me, the Pleiadians came here and they bred with us. And many of my elders tell me, they are our brothers, our sisters, our uncles and our aunties and our parents. They are part of us. Now that makes sense. And that explains why humans come in every shape and form. And while all other animals don't. And that's why all of us are so different because we come from a different genetic base, part terrestrial and part non-terrestrial. And then even within that, I myself am original and I'm 4.7% Denisovan, which really means I'm 1 20th, not even sapien. So we mix with sapiens, we mix with Neanderthals, we mix with all sorts of things. And that's why we are such a dog's breakfast genetically. But most importantly, what people need to understand is, it's not just the Denisovans, it's that being we've found now. And we found four of them. 
so that what that means is that we have we've got to understand something we are actually galactic citizens mm. we've got to get ahead around the fact that we think we're just on this planet there are many other life forms in the cosmos and so many of them are so enamored and locked into what happens on this planet I mean, you've got to understand that, ladies and gentlemen, that's really the important part of this equation. The question we should be asking is why would they bother with us? I mean, check out our history. Why would you come to go and watch cranky apes fight each other all the time? There doesn't seem any point in that. So they've come for a reason and they're here for a reason and their genetics aim in us for that reason also. So we believe that those beings, this one over on this side, is part of our ancestry, and I think we need to understand that. I can tell you that the uh, New South Wales, the government in Australia, are fully aware of what we've got, and I'm not quite sure, but this might sound quite odd. <laughs> no, not after this conversation. <laughs> no, no, this is the odd part. Like, oh, okay. Now moment, we're getting now we're getting odd. <laughs> This is the odd part that after me getting what 10 pieces of correspondence threatening to put me in jail and telling me how they were going to do it, <laughs> they now said they're going to help me. Oh, and what I want is one thing I want this piece, this one here. We have the bones at mm -hmm. home right now, and they know we have the bones in our house and they've given us permission to store them. I want one of those bones, just one, that small piece up there. I want the rest buried. I want to put on site tomorrow if I could. I want that small piece checked for mitochondrial DNA, for genome patterning. We've got an expert in Australia that can do their teeth and do full science and find out what is the genome pattern of this being. And I'm going to tell you now, the genome pattern of this being that makes this thing grow the way it is without a forehead, with massive eyes, with a nose that starts up here, with a flask at the back, it's not the same genes that we've got that program our head. Mm. It's something completely different. And it's not from this planet because if you look at that, Lucy, which has got 600 cc, has a bigger forehead. But when you look at the back, you realize, oh God, there's the rest of the brain, but it runs yeah, backwards. Most of our brain is above our eyes. Only 5% of the brain of this being is above their eyes. It's not us, it's something completely different. Okay, well, that's fabulous if they're actually going to help you um, do the testing uh, for that. Oh, no, no. <laughs> if it was only that easy. Okay. There is a lot of politics to go through. We are a long way off getting tested. I've got an academic in Australia. I've taken that, those bones too, and he looked at it straight away, and he agreed with me. It don't fit. It doesn't fit. I'm not allowed to say exactly what he did say because someone said that, and then all sorts of people asked him, didn't they? Okay. He said it doesn't fit. That's all I'm prepared to say, and he's prepared to do that testing. He's got the machines to do it. He can date it. He can give us a date. He can do. So why stuff. are you going to proceed with doing that? I would testing? do it tomorrow if I could. Okay. I haven't got permission. Uh, I could go okay. through the reasons why. There are so many loops and so much hierarchy to get permission to do proper science. That's what I want to do. So who do I you need permission from? The government. And they can't give it to me yet. Why do you because need permission loops. from the government? Why? Oh, because there's other legal loops that have to be negotiated. At the moment, they can't be. Okay. And, and, and until those legal hoops are done, if I was to take the bones of that one there outside my house, I would be arrested. If I got them tested, I would be put in jail. It would be three years in jail and $1 million fine. I can tell you, I know that for a fact, because I've seen okay. it written many times. 
And I won't do those things. Yeah, of course. I, I just didn't know that. The government. Yeah. I want to do it with the government. I want to get it tested. I want to do proper science. And I've told the original people, we know where those bones should be buried. And I want mm -hmm. to get them, put them back there. But um, there are many legal loops okay. here. And at the moment, as much as I'd like to do proper science to prove this is not terrestrial. And when the government saw, saw that particular, when we got it made to this level, I don't know if that was the reason they stopped because we actually got it made up and we got it done professionally too, ladies and gentlemen, with experts in their field that did, they probably spent what, six months doing this, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Lots of consultation to do this and they looked at about a hundred photographs from four sites to get this right. So yeah, we did this properly with the scientists on site all the way through. And I want to stay that way. I want to get this done so no scientist can say the many things they say about us now. They just kind of admit, well, you did all the proper science, therefore it's not from here. Well, where else can it be from? If you can't find it on the ground, you've got to look up in the skies. Well, you did say Earth was about challenges, so this is a little challenge for you along the way. Oh, there's plenty of challenges here, I can assure you. A lot I've got, I've got a question that might is kind of related, the, the, one, the, the head that you call Palladian with mm. the large eyes and the very thin bones. How did you, if, if they came to Australia or, or to this land, how mm. did they traverse through the bush? The Pleiadians themselves. Or extraterrestrials. I'm not so sure they did. I'm not so sure they did because looking at their physique. That's what I'm um, saying. It would be very hard, um, you know, for them to, to move through the bush. Well, yeah, but we've got a feeling um, from some information I was given and the fact that one of these skulls was found directly beneath where it was buried and we think they could be what I would call cliff dwellers. They would have had long arms for scampering and climbing. Mm -hmm. We think they're cliff dwellers and we, we feel that they came out at night. They couldn't have come out in the day much because I think the, eyes, um, that makes and the gravity sense. would have been difficult, but particularly the sunlight would have been too mm -hmm. difficult. We believe they still could have had some power on their wrist to climb. The, the, the limbs here weren't that important, but maybe the next limb would have been stronger. We've got a feeling, particularly because we do know, I think we've located that one place they lived was on a steep cliff. So I think, and I believe it was sort of like in a cave. I've been told about that. I've been told indirectly about the site where the skull from one of these fell. Um, and within about, oh, no more than 40 kilometres away, Jim Bowler found a site there which has been dated at 120,000 years with the best wow. science in Australia, which means this story about Africans coming to Australia 50,000 years ago is rubbish. It always was rubbish. We're not related to Africans at all. Um, they're related to us. It's the other way around. But no, we, we feel like um, they're coming out more at night time. And I feel sense. like those arms are mm. functional, but not for anything other than maybe just climbing and scampering because of the length you would have had, but certainly not for picking up big sticks and throwing them and sort of fighting because that's not what they'd be there for. But clambering around the side of places could work. It could work. Mm. Very interesting. Wow, what an incredible discussion. <laughs> well, welcome to Australia. Wow, wow, wow. I don't know, does Evan want to have a chat or 
anything to talk about? I mean, obviously I could talk to you for hours, but in the concept of time, this time that we call. <laughs> anything you want to say, Evan? Um, the only thing is probably worth adding is that we've got that event coming up in Byron. Um, yes. Yeah. So I know you have an event coming up in Byron at the end of yeah. this month. End of and, November. End of November. End of November. I'll share with you one thing. That, that came about, and it was actually reinforced by a phone call I got about three days, two days ago by an elder. Over the last year and a half, elder after elder from all over the country has been telling me exactly the same story, and they don't know each other. In fact, when we ring up, when you elders speak to us, we always start by saying, you do know about the change. And they always do, don't they, Evan? Yep. And what we were told is this, and it's worth sharing with your mob. Please. Um, this is a prophecy that is so consistent. When I first heard it, I sat on 50% and I hoped to God it would happen. I now sit on 95% and I'm a cynical scientist and I'm so close to being 100%, but I could never do that. What I was told was that Yes, the Pleiadians came and then left, but there was a deal that if we sung them and called them, they'd come back. If things were really getting out of control and I was told they were sung. And the very first elder that rung me and told me about this was two years ago from Victoria. And I don't think it's, I think it's okay to say his name, Brendan, isn't it? Brendan Murray. He lives old way, really strong old way. Um, lives in the bush. Um, lives proper in the bush, just like things used to be. And he told me this story. And he said to me, they're coming. Our brothers and sisters, we call them, they're coming. And they're coming as I speak now and they'll be here soon. I said, well, Brendan, what do you mean? And I've asked others the same question. He said, no, they're coming. And they're going to give us a chance before the earth heals itself for us to heal this planet. And then he told me what was going to take place part of which I can tell you and part I can't. He said, they're going to come and they're going to hover above Uluru. Some people know it as Ayers Rock. It's a proper name, original name is Uluru. And it's a sacred place for us. There are five sacred places in Australia, five really strong ley lines that resonate around Australia. And they said this, they said if there were the right number of people in Australia, it would take all their energy, didn't matter where they were, concentrated in that ship and then shoot that energy into that rock, Uluru. And then that would run out to five lines and then activate those five sacred sites in Australia, like a web. And then that would go to every sacred site in the world and energize every one of them. He then said what will then happen is the earth will resonate at two different vibrations at the same time. You probably know the Schumann resonance story about how it's peaked up to 140, then gone back to seven or eight. He was telling me it will stay at 140 forever. And there will be two resonations, one high, one low. And he said, then what will happen is each person will judge themselves and they will go to the resonance that suits their soul. If they are a CEO without heart, 99% of the reptilians, the Illuminati, the, the businessmen, the politicians, not all of them, but many of them, who are working at the base level that work for money and for, don't, with no respect for the environment and what should happen, they will resonate towards the lower level. And those who are more enlightened will go towards the higher level. And he said, what will then happen is 
it is impossible for anywhere on the cosmos for the, any planet to be in two vibrations at the same time. One must vanish and it will be the lower resonance. It will vanish completely. And he said, when that vanishes, so do to all those people who go to that side. He said, you'll see them like a shadow and they'll see you like a shadow, but we can't mix. We'll walk past each other, but we're in different places. And I remember to finish asking him, I said, so those people in the lower vibration, I suppose they'll die and incarnate and come back. And I've been told by all of them the same thing. They all say the same thing. No, this is the choice for each soul. The ones who've come back here have come back time after time after time and kept making mistakes. This is your last time. The bar's going to be lowered. You don't have to be a saint anymore. It was about 15 metres high. It's gone down to one inch. All you got to do is jump <laughs> over and just be a good person, basically. And I did say at the time, I'm worried about one thing. I said, because you know what's going to happen. When that ship comes, all those ones on the other side are going to say, oh, shit, the hippies were right. I want to become one of them. He said, no, no. They make their decision before that happens. Their soul will be set in the concrete before we come. And basically, the, the presentations we've given and this particular talk we're giving is called Our Alien Ancestry, What Comes Next? And it is really about that. I, we're going to do part of it and the other two people that are going to do one section, one section, Jane Bartley. James Bartley is going to talk about UFOs and proof they're there. Leah's going to talk about meeting aliens and the different types of aliens and their personalities, a bit like meet the Fockers to an extent, and to get to know what they're like <laughs> and their expectations of us. And then Brendan is going to talk about, he's been doing a lot of work about the science of telepathy and um, telekinesis and all the, all the talents that we actually do have. Every being on this planet is magic. We just don't know that anymore. It's been taken away from us. And that's what's going to happen in the future. So what we're trying to do is do a thematic approach based around the prophecy of the change that's taking place. And I know that prophecy is not just with the original people. I've heard the Hopi, the Inuit, the Navajo, people from all of the Mayans are talking about the change that is coming. And I also know that those people, the ones that wear the other ring, they know this change is coming too. And that's why they're making this world so fearful and so full of fear of losing your mortgage, fear of terrorism, fear of everything, so that when, and here's the rub with this story, when the Pleiadians come, they need a certain number of souls that are awakened. And if that number's not there, it'll be very much like a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where the whales fly off and say, thanks for the fish. They'll leave us. And then the earth will basically destroy, will destroy humanity as it cleans the planet. So it really comes down to a choosing point. Does the earth clean itself of us and all of humanity? Or do we cleanse ourselves to begin with? And if there is the right number of people in Australia, and it does start in Australia, I'm not making this an egocentric thing, but the Pleiadians came here first and Pleiadians only are allowed to live in Australia. No other group in the rest of the world, all sorts of beings from other places have been there. But this was a no-go zone for them alone. And they started this concept to begin with. They came first and they're coming back to possibly cleanse the planet. But that he actually rang me three days ago because he's never given me a time. And Brendan said, it's next year. Now, next I don't know if year. that's right or not. Next year. 
He said, it's, they're coming. They'll be here next year. He said, he's already seen the blue light shooting out of the sky near where he camps because he camps in the bush. They're about. But those ones that are about now are not the main ship because only the main ship. Remember the rule is this. Of course, the draconians and reptilians don't play by these rules, nor do the greys. But for the rest of them, they can't directly interfere. What the Pleiadians are doing is not interfering. They're amplifying what we have ourselves. And if there's not enough of it, they say, we came, we tried, but you just didn't measure up this time. You're done for. And then they leave us. So this is really an important time for humanity to stay spiritual and to believe. Because as it stands now, I can tell you now, there's no way the mob in control are going to clean this planet up or leave it any, I think, worse than what it is now and continue that way. Mm. They're too locked into money. They're too locked into greed. They're too locked into filtering the place up. And they're too locked into all the things they're doing now. The token gestures they make make no difference. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, 2% of our insects are dying each year. Within 40 years, there'll be no insect left on this planet. You can forget global warming, whether you want to argue for or against it. If there's no insects on this planet, we die. It's that close. The bees are disappearing, the insects disappear. When they leave the planet, the planet will die. Life dies with them. It's getting that close and that's why they're coming. Because I know we don't have hundreds of years. We've got two generations, one generation before the planet will implode and it will clean itself up. So this is a time, the presentation we've done for the first time is not a mixture of people who do different stories, but it's thematic. We're putting the speakers in an order so they all lead into one another on the first day. And on the second day, we're doing a workshop about the rocks, the sacred rocks, and their role in that change. And then I think Brendan is doing, activating our mitochondrial DNA and meditation. So we're gonna finish off very lightly. So it's two days, one and a half days about the change that my Everyone elders keep telling should go me. there. It sounds absolutely unbelievable. So, Well, hopefully we, we get enough people there because we're very lucky. The people that own this place have given us the hall for free. Mm. It would have cost us $1,000. So what we're doing is we're doing something unusual. We're going to arrange the whole thing and we're not going to charge any either. And therefore, this time, what we're going to do is the speakers who normally go in Australia, when you go in Australia, speakers normally, with the exception of one person, never get paid because the organisers, by the time they pay for the place and do the organisation, there's money, mm. no money left. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to split all the money between the five people involved in the speaking and give them the cut each, 20% each. So that's going to be different from the point of view they'll actually get paid for a change. But more importantly, this is all about an original prophecy of a change and what we're going to do from now on. And we always do this now. All our presentations are about that oncoming change and how we have to prepare ourselves. And what we tell all the people who come to our talks, you go out and everyone you see in the street that you know, your friends, your family, you get in their ear and you tell them there's a change coming. You've got to have faith and you've got to stay true to what should happen on this planet. Don't give up. Don't just fall into the trap that most people are. You have to believe that what we're doing is wrong and there's a way it can change. And if that's the case, and if we have the right number, they've actually been given the exact number, which was quite a shock to me. They're very emphatic it had to be this number. And it's a quite a few, 
it's not seven or eight. I can tell you that we need a lot of people. So can you tell us the number or not allowed to? Okay. Not no problem. To. I'm, there's a lot of stuff I wasn't allowed to tell, but I'm, sure. I'm telling enough to let people yeah. know. No, I respect that. Let's put it this way. It's in six figures. Okay. Okay. It has to be in six figures. And as some people have said to me, well, how do you get into that team? I said, oh, it's real simple. I said, all you've got to do each day is when you walk around, just have two words that resonate. Good intentions. Mm. That's all. You don't have to join a team. You can, be in a, you can be a Christian. You can be a Buddhist. You can be anything you want. That doesn't mean anything, really. You can even be a bloody atheist. That's not the point. It's not about the physicality of who you're connecting with. It's your no, it's internal. Got to do with it's that. an internal. In some ways, atheists that behave well, I admire more than others who behave because they think they get a reward. Mm. They don't think they get any reward, but still behave well. It's not a matter of what club you join. It's whether every day, everything you do is with good intention and thought about what it does. Now, that good intention means that when you do something, does it harm another person? Does it harm the environment? Does it harm an animal? Does it harm an insect? If it does any of those things, then you must say to yourself, no, I can't do that. So you have to think about what good intentions mean because we live on this planet. And if we harm the planet, we harm ourselves. If we harm things on that planet, then we harm them too. So it really is a matter of that. And if we have that right number, which does go into six figures, when they come, they can feed off that, they can amplify it, and they can turn the planet on and then will resonate at 140, 150 all the time. And we will clean the planet before the planet cleans itself. Because if we don't do it, the planet will clean itself. And this will be the fifth extinction because we've been extincted out quite a few times before. And every time we did the same thing we're doing now, we let technology take over and our magic and spirituality, we just ignored it. And we're doing it again. And this is the worst time. We've done it worse than even with Atlantis and Lemuria. So this time is the final time. It's the judgment time. But you're the judge. There isn't someone this guy is going to judge you. Your soul and your karma will judge you. And if that happens on that day, you can't change sides then. It's over and done for. It's over and done before they come. So that's what the elders tell me, and that's what we prosecute. Well, wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that message and all your incredible stories with us on Passion Harvest. It's been such an honour. That's a pleasure. And thanks for asking. We appreciate that. <laughs> chance to get the, the wisdom out and the knowledge out. And it's not our wisdom. It's not our knowledge. It's just what we're told by others who know things that we should all know. And yeah. we're going to learn, learn very soon, one way or the other. And for anyone that's listening or watching, please look at the show notes. All Stephen and Evan's details will be in the show notes. Stephen and Evan, <laughs> wherever <Yeah>. you are, <laughs> He's back. thank you. We'll, we'll call you the IT. <laughs> <laughs> IT department. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you so much for being on Passion Harvest. So and no good worries. luck with thank your you. next talk. And all the incredible things you're doing. Good luck. I don't know what to say. Wow. Amazing. Thanks for sharing your journey. Bye. No worries. See you later. Thanks a lot. Thank you. That is the end of our passionate episode. Thank you so much for listening and please subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends and spread the passion. As always, every day, may you be more and more passionate.